You are listening to Hit Play, Not Pause, a feisty menopause podcast for active, performance-minded women. I am your host, Celine Yeager. Each week, I bring you advice from athletes, scientists, researchers, and other experts to help you feel and perform your best, no matter what your hormones are doing. This show is a production of Live Feisty Media. Hello, strong, feisty women. Okay, we cannot turn the calendar page on Heart Health Awareness Month without a super deep dive into one topic that comes up a whole lot in our community, cholesterol. I hear from dozens, maybe hundreds of active athletic women who have had perfectly fine lipid levels their whole lives, only to see them shoot up, often dramatically, at menopause. If you're one, you're not alone, I'm with you. So I have been wanting to sit down with an expert on all things lipids for some time now, and I found one in this week's guest, Dr. Samia Mora. She is a professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School, and she is also a cardiologist at the Brigham and Women's Hospital, and there she is also the director of the Center for Lipid Metabolomics. We talk all about cholesterol, all the types of lipids that we should be watching, including ApoB and LP little a, as well as how we should be thinking about our cardiovascular disease risk specifically as women, and that's different than we think about it for men, and of course, what to do about it. This is a pretty science-dense one here, but we try to bring it together in plain terms throughout the episode. I will also note that we talk about the Women's Health Initiative, or WHI, findings. And I bring this up in the intro because as we were talking and as she was explaining the research, I was thinking... There are going to be members of the audience who get ruffled up hearing this discussion on the Women's Health Initiative, because every time that comes up, people get a little ruffled because the WHI has taken a beating in the mainstream media and especially in social media as of late. But I think one of the things that's really important to bear in mind is that the WHI did indeed teach us a few really important things, including specific to this episode, that hormone therapy is not really good for treating cardiovascular disease in postmenopausal women. In fact, it's the opposite of good for us. And that's why the guidelines have come to recommend initiating hormone therapy for menopausal women who are having symptoms you know, within 10 years of menopause and before age 60. And it's not recommended if you do have cardiovascular disease or if you're at high risk for cardiovascular disease. And I will be straight up with you all. I follow the same Instagram accounts you do. I read the same books. I hear the steady drumbeat that we all need to be taking hormone therapy to protect our hearts. I hear it too. But the research is just not there to be making these big blanket statements that we all need it to protect our hearts. And that's why no medical societies recommend it for the primary or secondary prevention of cardiovascular disease. I'm going to drop a bunch of links in the show notes of this one, including the 2022 hormone therapy position statement, um, where they talk all about the research showing these effects and that yes, there are there is some evidence that there are some benefits when used early in some women, but that again, we need bigger, better powered research. 
I'll also include some complimentary studies in the show notes showing where the medical community at large stands on the topic, including an in-depth 2023 review published in Circulation that also shows, you know, you really need to take a risk-stratified approach when you're thinking about hormone therapy with women with healthy arteries being low risk and those with existing artery disease or other cardiovascular conditions that put them at high risk, being at like out of the, if you're at high risk, it's not recommended. It's just a lot to digest. I think it's important as we hear all these messages on social media to really dig into some of this ourselves. These studies are not super dense, they're pretty easy to read. And I recommend that you go into them yourself if you're interested on this topic. Because there is so much to digest on this one, I went ahead and wrote an in-depth companion blog that will come out on Feisty Menopause this week, where you can take your time and soak it all in. It just pretty much summarizes everything that you're going to hear in this episode. I also want to give you a little heads up that Samia's connection broke up a bit a couple of times here and there during the conversation. So please excuse the bumpy spots. My producer smoothed them out best she could, but the bulk of the interview is just fine. On a personal note, I find this whole topic super duper interesting. I've had borderline high lipids most of my adult life, which is genetically driven. They shot up post-menopause, and I've been able to bring them down mostly through diet, some supplements, but I have to really stay on top of it, especially with loads of fiber, oats and beans, you name it, to keep them in check. There's a lot of longevity in my family with people living in their 90s and even 100s. So I'll be straight with you. I've always been like, ah, you know, it's probably fine. But there is also, if I'm honest, a fair amount of heart disease that runs through my family. So out of personal and professional curiosity, I went ahead and got a clearly AI-enabled cardiac CT scan, which is a non-invasive plaque analysis that measures the volume and type, meaning stable or unstable, of atherosclerosis just to get a baseline for myself, since it gives you this in-depth look at your real risk. And my results are good, which made me happy, obviously. But as I sat with this all, it made me realize that we spend so, so very much time and energy on breast cancer screening for women, which is great. Don't get me wrong. I think breast cancer screening is a great thing. I've done shows on it. But heart disease still kills millions more of us. While one in 39 U.S. women dies from breast cancer each year, heart disease is a cause of one out of every three deaths in U.S. women. And we're just not as concerned about it, and we really, really should be. So this is my little love letter to you, from my heart to yours. There's lots you can do to take care of your heart, from diet, exercise, therapies. This is my little my little prompt, my reminder to take care of yours. Okay, before we get to it, give us a follow on Instagram and Facebook at Feisty Menopause. Come join our Hit Play Not Pause Facebook group where we talk about all these things 24-7. Thanks for the continued great reviews and five-star ratings. You guys rock. I love you with all of my heart. Um, and stay tuned for a brand spanking new kick-ass newsletter that I have in the works that I think you're really going to like. Okay. Truly enough of me. Let's have a few words about our awesome sponsors and get on with the show. Musculoskeletal health is everything during menopause. Everyone knows how much I love Joint Health Plus from Prevenex, which has helped me get back to distance running after arthritic toes stopped me in my tracks. 
Now they have a product that has become my go-to for muscle strength and recovery, Muscle Health Plus. Muscle Health Plus contains all the key ingredients we talk about on this show, like creatine monohydrate, essential amino acids, and branched-chain amino acids, plus even more cutting-edge ingredients like HMB and estrogen that are scientifically shown to increase muscle growth, recovery, and strength. I use it every day during my early morning lifting sessions, and there's no question that it helps my power during those workouts and my recovery after. Plus, I love having everything I need from the best high-quality ingredients in one reasonably priced shake. I've also heard from fellow users who have had bloating or GI upset in the past from creatine that haven't had any of that with Muscle Health Plus. I make my shake with almond milk and espresso, but it's also good with ice-cold water, which makes the flavor really pop. As always, you can get 15% off your first order with the code HIPPLAY, all caps, one word, at Prevenex.com. That's HIPPLAY, all caps, one word, at Prevenex.com. Do your muscles a favor and head on over and get some today. As a lifelong runner and cyclist, I am stoked to announce that Tifosi Optics has come on as a podcast sponsor. The beauty of Tifosi sports glasses is that they hit all the marks. They are shatterproof polycarbonate, so the lenses not only reduce glare, but also offer scratch resistance and complete eye protection. They stay put. They have little hydrophilic rubber nose pads that actually get more grippy the more you sweat, so they stay secure and don't slide down your face even when you're running in sauna-like conditions. No matter what sport you do, they have a shade for your activity, including tennis, fishing, pickleball, running, cycling, and just hanging out at the beach. And they are super reasonably well-priced, which is very hard to find in a sea of overpriced eyewear. And they just look freaking rad. So head on over to tifosioptics.com and use the code FM, capital F, and capital M, like feisty menopause, number 20, FM20, to get 20% off your order today. I'll put a clickable link in the show notes to make it a snap. Okay, well, as I was just telling you before I hit record, Dr. Samio Mora, I am so, so very excited to have you here because cholesterol is, oh boy, boy, it's a big issue in our community. So I appreciate you being here. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation. So, you know, whenever we talk about cholesterol, it's in this negative connotation, like we like it's this bad thing, right? Oh, what's your cholesterol? What's your cholesterol? Can we establish what cholesterol is? Because we can't live without it, correct? Like I'd like to just lay the groundwork. I, I've heard it described as a hormone factory, but I don't know if that's accurate. Yeah, sure, Celine. So I mean we say cholesterol, we often mean not just cholesterol, but cholesterol and also triglycerides and other lipids. Um uh, however, if you just look specifically at cholesterol, what is the, the medical term cholesterol? Um, it's, uh, it's synthesized in the liver for the most part. Uh, sometimes um, people don't realize that actually all cells in our body synthesize it. So they produce, they make cholesterol. And that's because cholesterol is, as you said, not just very important for, um, uh, for some hormones like um, steroids, um, such as, you know, estrogen, uh, testosterone, bile acids, vitamin D, but also it's essential as a key component in the cell membrane. So all the cells in our body um, have cholesterol in them. And also it's um, the membrane 
of the lipid or lipoprotein particles. These are particles that carry the cholesterol in the bloodstream because cholesterol doesn't just freely flow in our bloodstream. It's carried in these particles like boats that carry the cargo. And each of those also have to have cholesterol um, in them to be able to, 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 to exist. So when people say cholesterol, often the lay um, terminology, people also mean cholesterol, triglycerides, other lipids, uh, and then there are different subsets of them. And as you said, um, there's, there's, um, you know, there's a lot of data out there for LDL cholesterol. We know now that LDL cholesterol, that's low density lipoprotein, this is a particular uh, type of cholesterol that's carried by the LDL particles. And that there's now extensive data, you know, all the way, all the way back from like the 70s um, that now we know is a causative factor for cardiovascular disease, heart disease, stroke, um, uh, in particular for coronary events, heart attacks, um, angina, uh, these kinds of diseases. And, and it's one of the major, considered one of the major cardiovascular risk factors. So the other ones being obviously tobacco smoking, high blood pressure, hypertension, diabetes, um, uh, and, and then you have family history and some other non-modifiable uh, factors like our age and our sex. And, and, and um, you know, so it's considered one of the major cardiovascular risk factors. That, when they say that, that's really for LDL cholesterol. Um, it can also be extrapolated to total cholesterol. I know we'll get into some of the sub of cholesterol later on in this conversation. I just want to highlight that some of the earliest data about the role of cholesterol in, in human populations came actually from uh, like now over 40 years ago from uh, uh, a study led by Ansel Keys called, called Seven Country Study. Mm -hmm. And there they compared, it's an ecological study uh, that was across different regions of the world. And they noticed there that um, the higher the cholesterol in the countries or regions, the higher the rates of dying from coronary heart disease, so dying from heart attack, basically. And they also found a very interesting finding, which remained a puzzle for a while, um, but now we have more insight into, which is that there was a gradient, even for the same cholesterol level, there was a gradient going in terms of risk for dying from coronary disease, where the risk, say, in Europe was highest in the northern countries, and lowest in Southern Europe or the Mediterranean areas. And we'll get into that later on when we talk about Mediterranean diet. Okay. So then where does HDL, which we've always heard of as quote unquote good or protective come into this picture? And a lot of ApoB has gotten attention, you know, like the, the rise of the Peter Atias over the world have made us all very lipid literate, you know, so like, but, but only so much, you know, so a little information is maybe good or not. Mm -hmm. um, sure. It's just confusing also, even to, to people in the, in the field. Um, uh, you know, in fact, lipid metabolism is one of the most complex processes that, that we still don't know a lot about. Um, but the bottom line is it was called, LDL was called the bad cholesterol and HDL was called the good cholesterol, basically because of what I said, in terms of the LDL cholesterol, there was found to be this increased risk with cardiovascular events, especially coronary, the heart events. And HDL cholesterol, on the other hand, high density lipoprotein, was associated or known to correlate with lower risk of events. And that was consistent across many studies. So that's why the terminology came out like bad for LDL and good for HDL. 
However, over the past decade or so, we know now a lot more about HDL than we did before. It's still a very um, mysterious, confusing, complex molecule that, you know, um, it, not just molecule, but, but particle that we really don't know um, the, the, you know, a lot about as much as we do about LDL cholesterol. But what we do know is that um, in terms of risk for partner, if a woman is interested in knowing her risk, like what's my risk for having a heart attack or stroke in the next 10 years or in my lifetime, then what we do know is that having a higher HDL cholesterol tracks with lower risk of heart disease events over, you know, over time. Um, but we do know that it's more complex than just, you know, bad and good um, because HDL particles, see these particles, cholesterol, like I said earlier, it's not just freely floating in our blood. The cholesterol is carried in these particles. These particles, some of them are the LDL, the low density. The reason they were called low density is because initially when they separated them, the technique used to separate these particles, they spin the blood and then they see where does the, the you know, the particles, um, where do they separate? And low density lipoprotein, was, uh, you know, floated a bit more than the high density lipoprotein, which was because it kind of sank a bit to the bottom. And that's where the terms high density and low density, and even very low density or the BLDL, these are the ones that often carry a lot of the triglycerides. But each of these particles structurally is similar in many ways, but what they, so the LDL and the HDL particles look very similar in some ways, they all have cholesterol, like I said, in the membrane outside. They also have cholesterol inside the particle. They have triglycerides inside the particle. They carry these apolipoproteins or proteins on each particle. These are kind of like the signature for each particle. But their functions, um, what they do, the, the functions of these particles are very different. So where does, um, in your opinion, like, where does apo be and how important is that like i'm i'm hearing in some places that that is like increasingly important to pay attention to that number specifically yeah apo b is um the simplest way to think of apo b apo b is apolipoprotein b mm -hmm. it's a standard chemical assay that basically is now available almost every clinical lab it's um uh, it's standardized across labs which we cannot really say for ldl cholesterol because ldl Cholesterol, actually, we estimate, we calculate LDL cholesterol for the most part. And the assays that we have that directly measure it aren't that great. Um, nonetheless, um, uh, total cholesterol is standardized. So, for example, you know, um, okay, so what's the difference between ApoB and, and cholesterol? So, when you're talking about ApoB, ApoB, like I said, these, these particles that are circulating in our bloodstream, carrying the cholesterol, they carry triglycerides. They also carry these proteins. Mm -hmm. We call them apolipoproteins. And the apolipoprotein on each particle is like, if you have a stamp, that is for me, you know? So each type of particle has a stamp in terms of its apolipoprotein profile. So you broke and up a little if, bit, it has a stamp? Yeah, like a stamp, like a like a signature that, okay. that basically is involved in the function. So what does this person do? What does this particle do? And in fact, this is where it's the bad is probably better to remember for the ApoB bad because ApoB is the apolipoprotein that's carried on all the atherogenic or bad particles. So not just LDL, 
but also the very low density lipoproteins, so VLDL, also on lipoprotein little a, which is um, another particle uh, in the bloodstream that is also um, uh, appears to be causative in terms of cardiovascular disease. And also the chylomicrons, when we eat these, um, the, the particles that sort of initially process the fats and that we digest, um, those also have ApoB. Uh, when we say ApoB, people generally mean ApoB 100, um, which is a, a specific ApoB that's on all the particles I just mentioned, except for the, the chylomicrons, because those have ApoB 48. Anyway, that's a minor detail. The key to, to note about ApoB is it measures the number of particles. So you know, I was talking earlier, the cholesterol that doesn't freely flow. So if you took all the LDL particles in our bloodstream and you were able to extract from them the cholesterol, that would be the LDL cholesterol. ApoB is the number of these particles. So the cholesterol on LDL is the cholesterol being carried in these particles. But like I said, the particle has triglycerides, has um, proteins, has, has other um, components to it. And the ApoB marks each one. So each one of the bad particles carries one and only one ApoB. So that's why ApoB is basically the number of the bad particles. And you can get into why that is seems to be a better measure of risk than just cholesterol itself. Well, how is the cholesterol damaging? You know, when it does do its damage, like what is happening that we yeah. associate it with, you know, arthrosclerosis and cardiovascular disease. Yeah, yeah. I, I highlight here, we now know there's a difference between the cholesterol we eat and the cholesterol in our body, right? Like I said earlier, um, our body synthesizes cholesterol. As it turns out, most of the dietary cholesterol actually doesn't really correlate as much. Um, I mean, there is a correlation, but not that much in terms of the LDL cholesterol level or the total cholesterol level. Uh, what matters more is the saturated fat. Um, in terms of the, the levels of LDL, for example, LDL cholesterol. Um, uh, you know, the earliest descriptions, um, Celine, of cholesterol were like back in the 1700s, and that's how it was identified. Um, and, and basically, they, f they found it in atheromas, atheroma being the, the part of the artery, on say autopsy, the part of the artery that is diseased with what we call plaque or um, atherosclerosis. And even the word atheroma came from the Greek. It meant, meant like mush or gruel. Um, and, and that's because of the cholesterol that they found in it. So the cholesterol in our body has many functions, like we said earlier, it's part of the particles, etc. cetera. Um, but when it's in excess, and unfortunately in lifestyle, Western lifestyle, uh, you know, uh, Almost all of us, if not, you know, I can almost say all of us, basically have an excess of cholesterol unless you really have um, one of the some rare genetic um, um, mutations. But for the most part, we all have excess cholesterol um, compared to, say, for example, more traditional hunter-gatherer societies or what we know um, uh, as being more um, the 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 healthier lifestyle that people used to have, um, and these. You know the, the profiles them for them the LDL cholesterol was about like half what it is for an average for us now. So how is I I'm still a little unclear how it's um, 
how it's harmful to our arteries? Like what is actually happening there? Okay. So the atheromas that I was mentioning, yeah. um, they start to develop early and they develop because of multiple things. But one of the key components that's needed for them to develop is cholesterol. Okay. Um, and that cholesterol, especially if carried by particles like LDL cholesterol, gets oxidized or modified. And that's how then it gets into these atheromas that over gotcha. time get bigger and bigger. Okay. And then when they get to be so big, they block our arteries. Gotcha. Um, you know, the coronary arteries are very small. They're about like two millimeters in diameter. So, you know, it's actually surprising that, that not more people have heart attacks when they're younger. However, I just want to mention, we do know that cholesterol is crucial in terms of the development of these atheromas. But in terms of heart attacks, something happens to the plaque. All of a sudden, something happens and the plaque ruptures. And you know how I said there was this mush and gruel inside, that's why the Greeks called it atheromum. And then that kind of, that all that stuff, bad stuff comes out into the bloodstream. And then that causes clotting factors to come and the body's response to it, inflammation, et cetera. And then you get a heart attack, for example. Um, and while cholesterol is necessary, but there are other risk factors for um, developing both atheroma, atherosclerosis, as well as clinical events like heart attacks and stroke. And those are other factors we talked about, hypertension, diabetes, smoking, um, uh, family history, uh, obesity, etc., diet, exercise, all, lack of exercise, all these other risk factors really are also very important. So what should, uh, how often should a woman get screened and what should she be particularly looking at? And where would you point her to find like the best ranges? I would say um, the clinical guidelines vary in terms of which age somebody should get screened. But in general, if you look at the pediatric guidelines, they recommend even starting as early as like 10 years old. Um, this is in general populations. If somebody, if a woman or, or um, a person has a family history of a cholesterol problem, they should be screened much earlier, even around the age of two, for example, um, uh, or even earlier. Um, but. What we do know is if you don't get it when you're 10, you should at least get it, you know, around the age of 20, but definitely by the age of like 40s, um, 50s. To be fair, most people do get their cholesterols and lipids checked. I think for LDL cholesterol, that's not the limiting factor. Um, although there's always people who are missed because of say insurance purposes or they don't have a healthcare provider or they don't know they should check it. Um, but the, the, the ones that don't get checked as much are, are other ones like the lipoprotein little a, LPA, which is another type of lipoprotein that is also bad um, uh, uh, terms of cardiovascular disease. Um, in terms of level should be a good level. That's a, a, an interesting question because over time, the guidelines have completely changed. So if you go back to like 20 or 30 years ago, the guidelines were... Uh, we're much more liberal in terms of allowing much higher LDL cholesterol levels. Um, like I said, you know, most of us walking around don't have what's really considered ideal um, cholesterol levels because we live in a Western lifestyle where, you know, a lot of it is sedentary. Our diet, you know, um, uh, has a lot of influences that are not favorable, etc. You know, so so in terms of risk, the woman has to know her risk for cardiovascular disease. And based on that, that's what the guidelines use to recommend a person's LDL cholesterol, which it should be. 
so it's not easy as saying, okay, everybody should have an LDL cholesterol, say, below 50 or below 70 or below 100, because it depends on the risk. If a woman, and I think your audience is basically a lot of healthy women, if a woman is generally healthy, then an LDL cholesterol now, we consider less than 100, for example, is good. Um, but if she's higher risk, let's say she has um, hypertension or family history or um, older age, uh, you know, any of the risk factors that increase a woman's risk, and there's online calculators, by the way, that women can also use to calculate the risk. But basically, if her risk is, let's say, um, high, then she should really be less than 70 or even the very highest risk people are people who've already had a heart attack or stroke or have significant vascular disease or multiple um, factors that put them at really high risk. We aim for less than 55 milligrams and even in some people less than 40 milligram per deciliter in some people. Good sleep. The one thing that sets you up for a great workout and a good day is quality sleep. We talk about it all the time here on the show, which is why I'm stoked to have Lagoon Sleep as a new sponsor. Because one of the most overlooked tools in a great sleep toolbox is the thing you literally rest your head on eight hours a night, your pillow. A quality pillow is everything. Otherwise, you end up tossing, turning, punching, and folding your pillow, waking up with neck pain, and all the stuff that happens when your pillow doesn't meet your personal comfort needs. Say hello to the most comfortable sleep you've ever had with Lagoon. They start you out with a two-minute personalized pillow quiz and then pair you with your perfect pillow. I got the Otter, a cooling adjustable pillow that is perfect for side sleepers who run warm at night like I do. It is a dream. It's fully adjustable, so I was able to get the perfect loft and support, and the cooling feature is everything. As someone who turned into a furnace every evening before menopause, I appreciate that the Otter is stuffed, with shredded gel-infused memory foam, which instead of trapping heat from my neck and head, draws it away and dissipates it. It's truly delightful. I'm a good sleeper, and Otter's taken it to the next level with both support and cooling. Put my head down, good night, Irene. My aura ring confirms what little tossing and turning I was doing is gone. The beauty of the pillow quiz is you can get the perfect pillow that you need to and make your sleep the best sleep you can have. Go to lagoonsleep.com slash hit play and take the two minute quiz to find your perfect match and then use the code hit play, all caps, one word for 15% off your first purchase. Sweet dreams. For decades, running shoes have been researched, tested and designed for men. Brands have relied on the shrink it and pink it approach to sell male shoes to female customers. That's why we are stoked to be working with Hedda's. Hedda's designs athletic footwear for women that elevates performance, safety, and style. Hedda's has unlocked the science behind women's biomechanics through dedicated research and creates better shoes for women's performance. Some of Hedda's special features include a lower ankle collar to reduce rubbing on women's ankle bones, a breathable mesh toe box to allow for ventilation and accommodate female toe shape, a more narrow and reductive heel cup to reduce heel slippage and take pressure off the Achilles, a rounded instep that creates a snug fit through the middle to match the curvature of a woman's foot, and supercritical foam and a PBEX plate in the midsole to keep our legs going when the going gets tough. Hedda's has three shoe models designed for different sessions, the Alma Cruise for your long runs, the Alma Tempo for training days, and the Alma Speed for pushing the pace. I've been running in the Alma Tempos and they are a pleasure to train in. You can get your own pair of Hedda's at Hedda's.com and use the code FEISTY20, that's all caps, FEISTY20, for 20% off 
Check it out today. We'll put a clickable link in the show notes to make it a snap. Let's let's speak about women specifically, because it seems like we have a unique relationship with cholesterol with our hormone levels, especially like we have a menopausal audience and um, I have lots of questions there. But how does cholesterol respond to hormonal fluctuation? I mean, mean, I've seen some studies that it even seems to change during the menstrual cycle. So in terms of the menopause transition, um, you know, what we do know is that as women go through menopause, their cholesterol, um, the LDL cholesterol increases in general. These are, you know, observations across people. So each particular woman may be different, but in general, the LDL cholesterol goes up. The HDL cholesterol, uh, which like I said, was generally inversely related to cardiovascular risk, that goes down and triglycerides generally also go up. Uh, At the same time, you know, the menopause is not just like a day or two. It's a, it's a period of time and there's premenopause, menopause, and postmenopause. And in that whole, you know, set multiple years, what's happening also is the woman is also getting older and often her other cardiovascular risk profile is also changing. So we know that as, so basically the lipid and cholesterol changes that happen with menopause are the worst, unfortunately, in general. And um, what we do know also that when a woman is premenopausal, so uh, younger women menopausal tend to also have higher HDL cholesterol than men by about 10 milligrams per deciliter. And we think, like I said earlier, that having in general a higher HDL cholesterol is protective. But what we also do know, actually, we conducted a study in the Women's Health Study, which is a large population of about um, uh, 28,000 women that we follow and we continue to follow um, the women who have volunteered to be part of the study for now uh, multiple decades. And what we've observed is that the women who had a high HDL cholesterol, even when they go through the menopause transition, um, if their HDL cholesterol remains high, then um, it, it does. It doesn't mean they never get cardiovascular disease. It it generally, what we know is the, these, these women have a cardiovascular event, but later, they may have it like 10 years later. Um, and it also depends on their other risk factors, their blood pressure, their triglycerides, you know, um, obesity, their physical activity, their diet, um, family history, etc. cetera. Um, so so um, the bottom line is as women are going through menopause and after, you know, they should be aware that they're, it's, a, it's a natural thing that happens with them. And as, as you said, because of the hormonal changes, the LDL cholesterol can go up and the HDL cholesterol can come down. Um, and, um, but it doesn't, it's not, doesn't mean every woman will experience that. Um, and it also is an opportunity for intervening because as we get older, our risk as women um, increases for cardiovascular disease. In fact, most women, if they use this online calculator I was mentioning, um, if they're younger, they tend to not meet even criteria for for most um, medications that prevent cardiovascular disease. As we get older, as we go through menopause, um, because of these changes in our bodies and in, in the lipids, et cetera, many women may now become eligible for statins. Although I, I agree with the guidelines that say um, these statins should really be used much earlier um, uh, because we really know we can prevent heart attacks and strokes in a large number of people uh, who start them earlier. 
so basically, yes, it's an opportunity also to be on our risk factor because um, all risk factors get worse also generally with age. So I, I shared with you like a pattern that I've heard a lot in my audience and a woman a doctor I work with in Boston has seen where the like at menopause, the LDL, and I've seen this myself, the LDL has gone up, but my HDL has also gone up and my triglycerides have still stayed super low in their 40s. My blood pressure is good. Do we have any idea like what that pattern is looking like? I don't know if it's just because we have an athletic audience and they're responding differently. I, I, I'm not sure. Yes, yes. So people who are more athletic and more health conscious um, uh, have a better lifestyle as, as uh, the, the, the profile you were mentioning. In fact, actually, we studied this. Um, uh, we did the study in the Women's Health Study again. Uh, so it's, it's exactly kind of the, 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 the um, profile of patient that you're describing. And what we found is this, that, like I said, the ApoB is the number of particles. So a higher number of particles is worse because the B is for the bad particles, not just LDL, but also the VLDL, et cetera, LPA. Um, and what we found was that we could group women based on their ApoB and their LDL cholesterol into those that had high levels of both, those that had low levels of both. And there was quite a, a, a large proportion in the middle where, about half of them had high ApoB but low LDL cholesterol, and about the other half had a high LDL cholesterol and a low ApoB. So in terms of their risk, we followed these women. Again, they were part of our study for many years, and we followed them in the future for uh, about 20 years for cardiovascular events. And we checked their levels at baseline, so when they first came into the study um, back in the 90s. And what we found was that, of course, if you're low in both, the low ApoB, low LDL cholesterol, those are the women that have the lowest risk of cardiovascular events. And it's not surprising that the women on the other end with the high ApoB, so they have a lot of particles, LDL cholesterol is also high, so a lot of particles, and these, cholesterols, these particles carry a lot of cholesterol. So it's not surprising, given what we discussed earlier about atheroma, et cetera, that these women are high risk for cardiovascular events. The interesting part was the ones in the middle, the ones that had what we call discordance. So one of the levels of ApoB was high, LDL cholesterol was low, or vice versa. And there it was very interesting. The level of risk tracked actually the future risk of that woman having a heart attack or stroke or, or dying from cardiovascular disease tracked more with the ApoB. Hmm. So the higher the ApoB, um, the higher the risk. Even if the LDL cholesterol um, uh, uh, so, so if the LDL cholesterol was low, but the ApoB was high, that woman was at increased risk. On the other hand, the woman who had ApoB was low, but the LDL cholesterol was high, they actually had lower risk than the, the other woman that had a low LDL cholesterol and a high ApoB. So call this is a discordance phenomenon, this phenotype. It's basically the woman that you mentioned. Now, I have to say a caveat, because in you, when you told me about this case, the question also is how high is, is your or her LDL cholesterol? Like I said, H if it's in the HDL very high category, LDL. LDL. Okay. Um, so if the LDL cholesterol is really high, super high, by that I mean like say 160 milligrams deciliter, uh, it's high, really high, um, then we know that that will increase women's risk. Um, it's ideal if a woman has low cholesterol, also low AB. Like I said, the woman that had a low um, LDL cholesterol but had a high ApoB was actually at increased risk. And um, 
and, and for future heart attack, stroke, cardiovascular death. And what's underlying this is basically that somebody like you, whose ApoB, for example, is low, that's good. You, um, you have a smaller number of particles of LDL mainly, because ApoB generally is the LDL, even though it also identifies these other particles, but for most part, it's basically 90, over 90% the LDL particles. So it means that you have few LDL particles. The woman that has a high ApoB, but a, um, a high LDL cholesterol, it means that she has many particles and they're also, they're also full of cholesterol. So, um, so it's, you know, if you had to have uh, basically an ideal profile, the ideal profile, low ApoB and low LDL cholesterol, both low, but the next best profile is having a low ApoB and, and, um, an LDL cholesterol isn't super high, like isn't in the 160 range, but, but could be above, for example, 120 or above 130. And does it matter what the HDL is doing? Yeah, the HDL, like I said, is a real good marker of, of risk inversely. So the higher the HDL cholesterol, all the calculators that you go to, you'll see that if you, you can plug in different numbers for HDL and you see all the calculators will give you higher risk for somebody who has lower HDL cholesterol. So the lower the HDL cholesterol, the higher risk. Now, it doesn't mean that um, that drugs that lower, that increase HDL cholesterol levels have been able to lower the vascular risk. That's where the conundrum came in. But we know that high HDL cholesterol, again, in all the populations that are studied, um, especially in people who don't have heart disease and, and already, once you have heart disease, there have been studies that kind of examine general populations, people with and without cardiovascular disease, and there the studies get more mixed because what happens is there are other things that raise HDL cholesterol that may not be as good for us. For example, alcohol. Alcohol will raise HDL cholesterol. So in the studies that don't really control significantly for alcohol, like really well, um, they may get confounded or a bias in the result of the finding. And um, what we also do know, Celine, is that when we're really old and about to die or have significant, you know, disease of some sort, like cancer or liver disease or any kind of major disease, because like I said, it's the liver that's the main producer uh, of cholesterol. What happens is when the liver is suppressed, all of the LDL, the HDL, um, the ApoB, all of them go down. And we know that then, you know, that person may end up dying a year or two later, but it's not because they're dying because their cholesterol is low. They're dying because of their other disease that's affecting their liver or affecting their general health so that they cannot even produce these particles anymore. Um, and that's what's happening sort of towards the terminal end. So those two issues end up confusing the question a bit. But, you know, for your audience, um, higher HDL cholesterol tracks with lower risk. Like in, our, in the women's health study, that's like the biggest analysis we did. And it doesn't mean that you're protected. You know, none of us is protected, unfortunately, completely. Um, but it means you're lower risk than if you had a low HDL cholesterol. And for women, generally, above level above 50 milligram per deciliter is considered good for the HDL. If it's lower than 50, so 45 or 40, or some people we see, especially people with obesity, metabolic syndrome, or diabetes, they may be even in the 30s. That's really high risk. Gotcha. So dietarily, you, you mentioned this, like this audience is old enough to remember when everything had low cholesterol labels on it, right? Do we need to, I mean, are eggs 
out of the question, like, well, how much do we actually need to be paying attention to dietary cholesterol? Yeah, the dietary guidelines um, and the AHA guidelines that also address diet and the European guidelines that also address diet, um, unfortunately made things much more confusing. And, you know, that's part of science, that's part of medicine, right? As things, as we know things, as we learn things, we change our recommendations. Otherwise, we'd all be practicing medicine like, you know, like, like they did 100 years ago. So what we found over time was that, um, you know, it's not so much the cholesterol that one is eating that affects the cholesterol level. It's really the saturated fats that are bad. Trans fats are bad, but now trans fats are mostly, uh, you know, yeah. almost nobody eats that. So better saturated fats and ultra processed foods are bad. And, um, and what happens to people is when we tell people avoid fat, for example, that was a wrong recommendation because fats are also complex. You know, these topics are very complex that we're talking about. So it's not like there's a black and white answer, but fats, there are different kinds of fats, right? There's the fat that you find in olive oil. That's good for you. There's a fat that you find in an avocado. That's good for you. But then there's the fats that are found in, in like, say, um, you know, uh, uh, red meat or, um, uh, you know, the saturated fats, those are bad for you. Um, but what happens is when you tell people a guideline, general guideline, that's where this all came in back in the, like you said, 80, I guess was in the like late 80s, 90s. And we told people, well, avoid, you know, cholesterol. So what happened is people started eating um, carbohydrates. And often the carbohydrates were ultra refined. You know, they were eating a lot of simple carbs or refined sugars, etc. And then that kind of results more in an obesity type phenotype. Um, you know, that, that also results in insulin resistance, results in triglycerides being high. We didn't talk much about triglycerides, but, you know, the triglycerides are basically um, marking these VLDL particles. Um, and the triglycerides then go up when you eat a, a high carb diet. And that turns out to be really bad for diabetes. And we know that diabetes, um, many studies show diabetes is one of the structures of cardiovascular disease. In fact, in the women's health study, we tried to see which women get heart disease, heart attacks at a young age. And it turns out that the women who got heart attacks at young age, they had basically had high rates of either diabetes or um, insulin resistance in their bloodstream. So they were like kind of a pre-diabetic, or um, if you did a few, few different tests on them, you found out that they look like they will get diabetes in the future. Those were the women that had the premature heart attacks and were the highest risk. So then our, our dietary interventions, you had mentioned the Mediter Mediterranean diet earlier. Is that, I mean, that's what we're looking at? Yeah. So in terms of diet, so uh, because of this, one of the trials that was conducted, this the audience will find this interesting. Um, this was the Women's Health Initiative. Women's Health Initiative was um, several different trials, but one of the arms was actually looking at hormones, <laughs> which we can talk about later. But one of the, the trials in it was actually looking at a low-fat diet. And um, the study was very large. And they randomized women. And they really achieved a low-fat diet in the woman. Um, and, and they found that that low-fat diet compared to a controlled diet did not reduce risk of cardiovascular events. Um, that's one trial that's really relevant because that's, that's in American women, postmenopausal and, um, you know, average age was in the sixties and they did, it was a very expensive trial <laughs> that was at the time NIH funding. The trial was really expensive, but it was very important to do. 
So that trial didn't work. So we know low fat doesn't protect you from cardiovascular events. So on the other hand, what's the other trial data for other types of diets? And what we do know now is really it's the dietary pattern that's most important. And, um, and that's where the guidelines have, have drifted to. So in terms of the Mediterranean diet, remember that study I told you earlier, the seven country study where they found this gradation of risk going from Northern Europe to Southern Europe. So that lower risk for the same LDL cholesterol, even same total cholesterol, there was lower risk if you happen to live in a Southern Mediterranean country than a Northern Mediterranean country. And that was a hypothesis that maybe it's related to the diet, the Mediterranean diet. It could be also related to other factors. Um, but that was a hypothesis. And so that hypothesis was then actually tested. And now we have three randomized clinical trials. The first one was done in men who were after a heart attack, the Lyon heart study, but they were French and, and they were randomized to a Mediterranean diet um, right after their heart attack. There were only like 600 uh, individuals, but they found a dramatic reduction in cardiovascular events, um, uh, you know, events. Um, but people said that's a French study. We don't know their men. We don't know what they were eating, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Then the, the same like kind of concept was tested with a very large PREDIMED study, which is now over 7,000 people. This was conducted in Spain, but it was um, included people who are on statins, included people who had cardiovascular risk factors, but also included people who were did not have cardiovascular risk factors. And they also found in the Spanish population that was taught, you know, intervened upon and taught to have more of a Mediterranean diet. And the, the, the group that had more of a Mediterranean diet were kind of split into two arms. One was told, try to take about four tablespoons each day of olive oil, extra virgin olive oil. And one was um, also recommended to take um, uh, nuts, raw nuts, walnuts, um, almonds, and hazelnuts, and um, about 30 grams of those. And both arms showed similar benefits in terms of reducing cardiovascular events. But in addition to the nuts and the Evo, extra virgin olive oil, they also had more of a Mediterranean diet. They increased their fish intake. They had more vegetables. Um, and they had about 30 reduction in events over about a, you know, a five-year period, which is, which is very what we see um, for the benefit for statin therapy, statins reducing cardiovascular events. And it was on top of statin therapy. So it turned out that people who were on statins or were not on statins in study benefited similarly from the Mediterranean diet. And then, you know, another study recently came out about a year ago showing the same findings. Basically, it was also done in Spain, um, CardioPrep study, and it showed the same finding among people who already have had heart attacks. Uh, so they already had heart attacks and then they were randomized to the diet. So prevention is key. Diet, especially a Mediterranean type diet. There is another kind of healthy diet. So the, the difference between Mediterranean and non-Mediterranean healthy vegetarian or like a DASH-like diet DASH-like diet is DASH is the dietary approach to stopping hypertension. It's basically low salt and it did not have EVO, extra virgin olive oil. So the Mediterranean diet has um, on average about 35% um, fat in it because it's mostly from the EVO and also from, there's all the unsaturated fatty acids as well on the diet. Um, there's also phytosterols, by the way, in the Mediterranean diet. Um, if you compare that to the DASH diet, the DASH diet was lower in fat. Um, and DASH was, not, was tested for reducing blood pressure. And it's very good for reducing blood pressure. 
but we don't have the kind of um, data we have for Mediterranean diet in terms of preventing heart attacks and strokes, but we think it would just as much as a, as a Mediterranean diet probably, but they, it hasn't been tested uh, for, you know, on a large scale like that. So that's why the strongest data we have for diet is from the Mediterranean diet uh, trials, as well as the observational data that I mentioned earlier. What do we know about hormone therapy? Because you mentioned the WHI. So like we, that is something that we're talking about constantly right now, like where it fits into this picture. Yeah, hormone therapy is another one that's gone kind of full swing. Um, I, I guess that's, you know, an attestation to the advances in science and medicine and also to all the women who participated in these clinical trials, because I have to put a shout out here. Um, if it's not for the clinical trials, um, then we would never know the, really the answer. Um, so so um, while there's still confusion, but we know a lot more now than we did, like, say, you know, 20, 25 years ago. So one of the other trials in the Women's Health Initiative was a hormone, um, a hormone postmenopausal hormone therapy arm, and actually there were two arms there. Um, if the woman, the, all the women were postmenopausal, like I said, they came from across the U.S. was multi-ethnic. Um, the whole trial, the whole study, actually WHI overall had like over one hundred and sixty thousand people. A really large study. Um, so anyway, as part of that, these like two trials in there that tested hormones. And uh, one patient that was tested was estrogen plus progesterone among women who had intact uterus. And then for the women who had um, a history of hysterectomy um, or, you know, um, no uterus, basically they were randomized to estrogen alone um, and versus, versus placebo. And um, the idea was, just to be clear, the, the question that was being tested was not like, does hormone therapy help for hot flashes? No, that, that we know. We know that hormone therapy helps for hot flashes. The, the question at the time was, does hormone therapy prevent chronic disease? And chronic disease, because heart disease and stroke are two main ones, that was, those were the key parts of the endpoints. But also there were other, you know, cancers were included, breast cancer, for example, also osteoporosis, colorectal cancer, et cetera, uh, mortality. <clears throat> And um, what we do know was that the data prior to that, the reason the trial was conducted was that there was a lot of observational studies that showed that hormone therapy, estrogen, progesterone, um, uh, at the time, you know, in the, you know, the PREMPRO kind of um, combination pill, uh, there was a lot of observation suggesting that it actually reduced risk of heart attack and stroke. Uh, so that's why the trial was done. And with a lot of NIH and a lot of participation from a lot of women for many years, the, the bottom line of the study was that progesterone plus estrogen in postmenopausal women did not reduce heart attacks. In fact, actually, the, uh, there was a borderline increase in heart attacks in the estrogen plus progesterone. Um, the estrogen alone did not increase heart attack risk, but both arms increased stroke risk by up to like 40%. There was no benefit on mortality. Um, there was also increased risk for breast cancer. There was some benefit for osteoporosis and colorectal cancer. Um, but overall, the overall um, net, you know, outcomes was, was more, um, you know, unfavorable. And so as a result, the recommendations changed after that. So now, it's a class three, meaning do not use among women who are high risk for cardiovascular disease, 
either they already have cardiovascular disease or they have risk factors for cardiovascular disease, or if they also have high risk or have breast cancer. Um, uh, you know, before, so you don't use them in order to prevent heart attacks or stroke. There was uh, also, I forgot to mention, there was increased risk of, of clots in the legs and pulmonary embolism clots that went to the lung. Um, so, so basically we don't use them to try to prevent heart disease, stroke, um, or mortality, you know, but there are women who have a lot of symptoms when they go through menopause in terms of hot flashes. So if they have severe postmenopausal symptoms, then it's really an individualized risk assessment, risk benefit assessment, especially if they are low risk for cardiovascular disease. If they're high risk, they should really not be even considering using them. But if they're low risk and they're just going through menopause, because the average age in the WHI was about 60s, so it was about at least 10 years post-menopause. And then some, some, but all the women were above 50, and they did some um, post hoc secondary analyses in the WHI trial. And they found is that the women that seemed to maybe benefit from the hormone therapy, maybe for cardiovascular events were the ones who were kind of in the 50 to 59 range. But again, that was a subgroup analysis. And the overall findings of the trial was that it, you know, did not prevent heart disease, stroke or mortality. In fact, it increased um, heart disease and stroke and, and clots. Well, that's why we look at that window of opportunity now, right? I mean, isn't that where that, it's considered? Are... Yeah, that's why it's yeah. considered. To be fair, we don't have really strong randomized trial evidence because the and like I said, WHO was very expensive, and um, you know you need really NIH and you need a lot of funding um, to do these big trials. So what we do have right now is like these smaller trials that try to look at surrogate biomarkers. So they may look at you know effects on the, the cholesterol or effects on the blood pressure, et cetera. But what we do know consistently is that you should not just look at these biomarkers. So a woman should not just look at her cholesterol, her blood pressure, she should try to know what's the data. Because for example, Mediterranean does not reduce LDL cholesterol or total cholesterol. It may increase HDL a little bit, but not much. So it really doesn't have much in terms of you know, standard cholesterol effects, but we do know it has many benefits for preventing heart disease and stroke. Um, versus hormone therapy. We know that, say, for example, hormone therapy, um, if you look at it in terms of the cholesterol, it actually reduces, you know, LDL cholesterol. Um, uh, often it raises triglycerides, but for LDL cholesterol, it reduces it. So people thought, oh, well, as it raises LDL cholesterol, it's going to have benefit. Um, uh, but it turned out when they really tested it rigorously in a clinical trial with a placebo arm, a control arm, there was actually the, the harm that I was just discussing. So, yeah, so that's why now in the women sort of in the early menopause, you know, it's really an individualized risk assessment, um, uh, you know, and only really if, if, if you have severe postmenopausal symptoms, um, because, and, that, and that woman should also make sure that she does everything in her capacity to also reduce her risk of cardiovascular disease through the other mechanisms that we were talking about like healthy diet, exercise, uh, you know, avoiding smoking, secondhand smoke, getting enough sleep, avoiding stress, all the other good things that, that people should do. What should women know about statins? Because we know women are less likely to be offered and less likely to take. Yeah, and women are less to even have their LDL cholesterol or cholesterols checked. Um, statins save lives um, in high-risk women. They also... Um, prevent heart attacks and prevent stroke by about 
20-30%. So basically, your risk for cardiovascular disease, heart attack, or stroke will be reduced by about 20 or 30%. So it'll be lower. It doesn't mean it protects you completely. Statins also seem to, to modify, like women present more with angina um, than men. Men tend to present more with like heart attacks. Um, however, sudden cardiac death is actually, um, you know, a more common presentation in women than in men. It's still not the most common presentation. Um, most common presentation of heart disease in women is angina. Um, but, you know, there are some women who just drop dead. So that's why we recommend statins to be used in, uh, in, in women and men who have a certain, like a high enough level of risk. What's that level of risk has changed over time. We used to only use it in the early 90s for the really high risk, like people who had LDL cholesterol over 200, uh, really sky high LDL cholesterol. Um, and if they had heart disease, and then the past 20, 25 years, we now use it much more liberally because all the studies basically showed the same consistent 20 to 30% reduction in cardiovascular events. And among the highest risk people, it also reduces um, death from cardiovascular disease as well. Um, the challenge for statins in women is that if you use a, a standard risk assessment, like I said, like if you use an online calculator, um, because women um, have uh, some protective factors that are in the premenopause, um, for example, like we talked earlier, the LDL cholesterol is a, is a bit lower, their HDL cholesterol is a bit higher than men, for example, that the, the standard risk calculators may seem to underestimate risk in women because the woman will have her event, but it may be 10 years or 15 years down the road uh, compared to a man of the same profile. So the average age for women having cardiovascular disease um, in the U.S., for example, is in the late 60s, early 70s um, for the average age. Does, there are still a lot of women who have it at younger ages, even premenopausal, especially if they have the risk factors we were talking about. They smoke or have a lot of secondhand smoking, um, have diabetes, have um, some of this, you know, very high ApoB, high LDL cholesterol, low HDL cholesterol, all these, you know, factors. Um, but the woman should know that even if the, their risk by a standard risk calculator does not calculate to be high, um, high enough to meet like a statin, general recommendation for a statin, um, which is generally, there are guidelines in the U.S. is about like a risk, a 10-year risk of about seven and a half or higher. Like very few women, especially the women following your podcast, if you plug your risk in in any of these online calculators, um, most women will end up being low risk, less than 5%, um, even up to the ages of like 70. You have to really get to above age 70 in most women, even if they have risk factors, to even like, um, meet criteria by standard guidelines for statins. So in order to address that, what the guidelines have changed is they said, in women, we should consider other risk factors. So a woman should know her family history. Is there a family history for heart disease and stroke? Did it happen at young ages, for example? Um, uh, they should know uh, their, their, their lupus that we were just talking about. Um, if they can check their ApoB, all the better. You know, it should be less than 100 in most people. Uh, they should also know if they have diabetes. Did they have gestational diabetes during their pregnancy? Often um, a woman's pregnancy history is ignored, but now you know there's a lot of factors for pregnancy 
and give us a vision into the future of a woman's risk. So if her blood pressure increased during pregnancy, if she got preeclampsia or eclampsia, obviously these are really high risk women for future cardiovascular events. Even if their sugar increased a bit more than usual, or if they got gestational diabetes, they can also be at increased risk, not just for cardiovascular disease, but it turns out that it's it also other, other factors like, like future risk of type 2 diabetes, future risk of even some of the valvular diseases that we know, heart failure. So those all are very important parts of the history. A woman should know about her pregnancy history, should discuss that with her healthcare provider. The other thing is some women have early menopause. So uh, by early, we mean less than 40. So if a woman has early menopause, she should also know that she's at increased risk of having cardiovascular disease, potentially for some of the factors that we discussed or potentially there are other factors that we still don't know. Um, and also there are, there are like, if a woman has metabolic syndrome, so she has, you know, the HDL is less than 50, the triglycerides is more than 150, has a little bit of abdominal obesity and a little bit of high blood pressure, but neither one of them is all sky high, but having multiple of these borderline risk factors can also uh, put a woman at quite increased risk, not just for um, for diabetes, but also for heart attacks, for strokes um, down the road. So you should know that. And then, you know, you could check your inflammatory biomarker, like CRP level. Uh, if it's high, uh, then that could also be a marker of, of um, chronic inflammation. She should also know her family history of inflammatory diseases. Women have more inflammatory conditions like lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, um, and you should also check her lipoprotein little a, um, at least just once for most people is sufficient to have that checked, uh, just to know if you have a high uh, genetic predisposition to having a high LPA and obviously blood pressure, diet, um, exercise, we didn't talk much about exercise, but that's also really important. Um, and, um, and also some women of particular ethnicities like African-American women, uh, black women in the U S have increased risk of, of stroke, of cardiovascular disease, of going on end-stage renal disease from their hypertension. And, um, and, and, and on the other hand, Hispanic women often have a greater risk of diabetes. As I mentioned earlier, diabetes is one of the strongest risk factors for premature cardiovascular. Um, and then South Asians also, uh, people of Indian or Pakistani descent seem to also have high risk for cardiovascular disease. We didn't talk about exercise because this this group does really exercise a lot. You know, they're they're active and athletic. I'm I am curious um, because w when we talk about statins, that is the number one thing that people worry about is muscle health and performance. Yeah, yeah, because you have active women. Yeah, the the people who tend to have more muscle problems with statins um, uh, are are the people who who tend to exercise a lot. Um, because they're using their muscles and the statins can affect the, 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 the muscles. I mean, um, there's multiple ways to address this. First, um, first, what you could do is people can take the, the, the statin um, on days that they're not exercising. That's well, that's not, not really been. <laughs> yeah. So if you're, so, so there's multiple ways I can just state them because of the um, short time, but basically some of the strategies are, uh, first, first question is always related to statin. So sometimes we test, we test the patient off of the statin for like four weeks and see do the symptoms resolve. If they resolve and then we restart statin and the symptoms back again, often don't. Or after the muscle aches were something else. 
um, uh, we may check a, a muscle enzyme test to make sure that it's not uh, very elevated. Um, other things to know about, does the woman, you know, hypothyroid, low levels of thyroid is very common um, in women, and that can also affect some of the muscle symptoms. Um, uh, there's controversy about whether vitamin D affects, did a study in our vital study, actually, by another trial that we conducted, where we did not, no, did not find evidence that having um, at least 2,000 units of uh, IU of um, vitamin D did not really help in terms of the statin-related uh, symptoms uh, in that study. Um, so so she should, the woman should know what other factors can put her to muscle uh, side effects. Um, uh, the other thing is the dose of the statin can be reduced. So like I said, um, it can either be reduced to a low-dose low statin. There are also different kinds of statins, and some may, may relate to the muscle symptoms, some may not, depending on the woman, depending on on her, her, her genetic profile in some people. Uh, uh, and then the other thing is you can really even cut down to very low levels of statin, like really mini doses, um, maybe a few times a week. And even just having some statin on board is, is beneficial compared to having no statin on board. Uh, so those are some of the strategies we do. Some people benefit from coenzyme Q10, although the clinical trial data is basically a wash. Like it's, it seems neither to help nor to to, from the clinical trials that were tested, but it doesn't harm. And some people seem to benefit from having on board as well. So these are some of the strategies that we use. Um, if a woman is high risk for cardiovascular disease, um, which, you know, maybe because of her family history or her age or other risk factors, then we really, really highly recommend they go on a statin because of the 20 or 30% reduction in events. But now also other options, if statin is really not tolerated at all, um, we have some other options. Um, Bempedoic acid uh, is, a, is another medication that interferes also in the cholesterol pathway. And uh, it's, it's sort of in the same pathway as statins, but it has different uh, profile for side effects. That one may be more tolerated in some people. Um, but also know is there are other kinds of injectable agents like the PCS inhibitors, those are injectable medications currently, although there is an oral PCSK9 inhibitor that's being tested. So we'll see, you know, time will tell. But there's other ways to also reduce, um, reduce the, the cardiovascular risk and reduce the LDL cholesterol. Gotcha. Whew. So uh, we're getting to the top of the hour and I, I want to respect your time. Is there anything that we haven't talked about that you think is important for these women to know? Um. I like the summary from the AHA. Um, most recently, they call it the AHA Essential Eight. So the Essential Eight are basically, I, I think your women um, know them, but just to emphasize that they added sleep now into as one of the eight. Um, and they said most people will need about seven to nine hours of sleep daily. And while stress per se isn't part of the Essential Eight, but we know stress affects all of these cardiovascular risk factors. And we also know women are often the caretakers for their household, for other dependents on them. And, and so stress can also affect a woman. Um, that also is another risk factor as well for cardiovascular disease. Um, but Life's Essential Eight is a nice summary. Um, the, the one that we really all do badly on is mostly diet. So uh, among the people who are really trying to follow a, a good lifestyle, diet is the one that's the hardest. Um, uh, but, but all of them are important. 
And I think know your family history. A lot of people don't know that much about their family history. Um, and, and they should also inform their children or their siblings of any family history they know, because that really affects risk, not just for cardiovascular, for like a cancer, for, for many diseases, know your family history as well. And know your risk. Know, um, a lot of the women who, who listen to us today, if they did a standard calculator, they'll be considered low risk. So they will not even be offered a statin, they'll not even be offered some of the lifestyle things we talked about. But for those women, I would say consider your lifetime risk. There are lifetime risk calculators now. There. Um, there's one called like CVD, uh, CVD uh, risk. But basically, it calculates over a lifetime. And that's a better, better um, probably for women, a better look at um, their risk rather than a short term of, okay, I just need to worry about the next five or 10 years, because we tend to live longer than men, especially the women and your follow your podcast, which is great. They're doing already a lot of the good things, but it still means that they could have a stroke when they're, you know, maybe 75. And even though they want to, you know, go beyond that and, and have a quality of life. So, uh, you know, I encourage people to always, you know, do the, do the, the, the lifestyle in combination with, um, medications and, and make sure to discuss those, you know, risks and benefits of both the medications, uh, uh, any medication basically that we talked about today with their healthcare provider. Excellent. Well, I appreciate your time and I appreciate your research in this work and um, uh, have a great rest of your day. Thank you so much. And thanks for having me on this podcast. Well, that's our show. Come on back next week when I make your jaw drop and your head explode with a conversation with Dr. Elizabeth Komen, the author of the brand new infuriating book titled All in Her Head, which has been described as a surprising, groundbreaking, and fiercely entertaining medical history that is both a collective narrative of women's bodies and a call to action for a new conversation around women's health. And boy, howdy, is it ever. So come on back for that one. And until then, as always, stay feisty. You've been listening to Hit Play, Not Pause, a feisty menopause podcast for active performance-minded women. I'm your host, Celine Yeager. The show is edited and produced by the strong, talented, and amazing women at Live Feisty Media. Follow us on social media at Feisty Menopause, And please help us spread the word. Screenshot and share this episode on your social media channels with the tag at Feisty Menopause. Share the show with your friends. And please subscribe, like, review, and rate this show wherever you get your podcasts. Word of mouth and good reviews make it easier for other listeners to find. Thanks for listening. And as always, stay feisty. Feisty.